Well, I heard you guys had Dan preaching last week, right? Yeah, so Dan's like cooking on high heat. I'm about medium, so. <laughs> but uh, yeah, as Andrew said, uh, I'm from Pine Ridge. As I've been called at Pine Ridge, I've been called uh, Andrew too. Because <laughs> um, yeah, we're doing the same thing that Andrew did with Dan, getting ready to preach, getting ready to plant a church because uh, we believe that's one of the greatest ways that we can spread the kingdom. And so you guys are doing it here and me and my wife were looking at and we're going to do that uh, in the next year. And uh, I want to start by getting my notes. Yeah, I want to start by asking a quick question. Fill in the blank, multiple choice, easy as it comes. When I say, uh, when I say David and, what comes to mind first? Goliath, Bathsheba, Jonathan, uh, yeah, because those are the three that come to mind. It's David and, it's usually not just David standalone, it's David and uh, one of those three. And when I asked this to Pine Ridge, Pine Ridge quickly said David and Bathsheba, because uh, for some reason we love talking about David and Bathsheba. We mention it probably once a month in dialogue, um, and so I put a little notch in my Bible every time Dan mentions it. Um, because it's a great story. It's a great story of a godly man who had a fall from grace and was restored in the end. And that's a story that we're going to look at here. And now it's, I'm sure it's a story that we all can repeat forwards and backwards. And you know, we're at the beginning of the year and like most people, we uh, like to try and read through the Bible in a year. We usually get to about January, then we decide to do a different reading plan. Um, but if you keep going and you get to 2 Samuel, you get to the story of David and Bathsheba, and if you're like me, you usually just skim through it because you know the story, we know all the plot, we know the people involved, and you just kind of flip through it because it's an easy way to get down two chapters and keep going. But what I want to do today, I want to take a look at a story that we all know really well, but look at it from Uriah's perspective exclusively. So I'm going to mention David, and I'm going to mention Bathsheba, because that's the title of the story. But we're not going to focus on their involvement in the story. We're going to focus, how does Uriah see the events play out today? Because when we look at it from Uriah's perspective, it doesn't change what happens, but it adds a whole lot of weight to what we actually see. So if you'll turn with me to 2 Samuel 11, and as you guys turn there, I want to do a, just a quick recap of chapter 10, because that's really where our story takes place, or begins at least. Because in chapter 10... Uh, a neighboring kingdom to the Israelites, uh, called the, the Ammon, Ammon, or the Ammonites, their king dies. And so David says, you know, because he was so kind to me, because he was kind to me during his lifetime, I'll deal kindly with his son. So David puts together an entourage of people to go comfort this new king. And as his entourage gets to the Ammonites, the new king and his counselors say, you know, this is David coming to spy on us. He thinks we're weak because of our old king's death. So let's deal shamefully with them and send them back. That's what they do. They, they cut the clothes of David's men. They publicly humiliate them. They shave off their beards and they send them back. And for a, a Hebrew, shaving off your beard is one of the most humiliating things that could happen to you. And David hears what happens to his men and he meets them. He doesn't let them come all the way back into Jerusalem. He says, wait in Jericho. Wait till your beards grow back, till your pride has come back to you, and then come back into service. And the Ammonites realize the wrong that they have done, and they get together 32,000 extra mercenaries on top of their own army, 
and they go to war with Israel. And Israel has this tremendous victory over them. And, and the Ammonites, they flee. They run, uh, tail between their legs. And uh, the mercenaries are defeated. And this is where we begin our chapter in chapter 11. So if you'll stand, let's read. We're going to read verses 1 through to 11. <clears throat> Second Samuel 11, 1 to 11. In the spring of the year, when the time when the kings would go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of a lion? the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and she lay with her. She lay with him. And uh, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent word and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked him, how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out to the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of, those, of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So some of your translations might say in verse 1 there, uh, in the following spring, which is uh, probably a better translation because right after what happened in chapter 10, after the rainy season that has just passed, the first people on David's list to go out to war when the ground is, is dry enough to send his troops across, the people on the top of his list are these Ammonites. And we see from verse 1 that he sends all of his men to go right the wrong that was happened. And they ravaged the Ammonites all the way to the capital city of Rabbah. And then David, as we know, does something that he's not supposed to do. And he's on his roof and he's looking and he sees a beautiful woman. And it's not just the fact that he sees this woman. It's that he then goes a step further. He pursues her and he, he sends someone out. And he, he sends a servant to say, go figure out who that woman is. And the servant comes back in chapter, sorry, in verse 3. And he says, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, I want to spend quite a bit of time in verse 3 here, because here, at least for me when I read this, this seemed like a throwaway verse or a filler line. And to us, honestly, verse 3 doesn't mean much. But to David, verse 3 actually packs a whole lot of punch. And so there's two things that feel like throwaway pieces of information that I want us to dive into as we keep going. 
Because the servant comes to David, and the servant says, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of a lion? Now, a lion, like I said, doesn't mean anything to us, but to David, this would have hit him right in the heart. Because a lion not only shows up here, he actually shows up in chapter 23. And if you'll flip there quickly, this is 2 Samuel 23. And so, partway through 23, Partway through 23, uh, David's at the end of his life, and he's recounting his 37 mighty men. Now, these are uh, the equivalent to special forces. So these are, out of the thousands upon thousands of warriors in Israel, these are David's top 37 men that he puts his absolute trust in in the battlefield. And you got on this list for a number of reasons. Um, and every king had this at this time. And you got on this list either by doing a great military accomplishment or like David you, you killed a giant that's how he got on Saul's mighty men or you slay hundreds of people by yourself now a good example is verses 11 and 12 there uh, you can just skim it there but a guy named Shammah he goes to war with the Philistines and as they're standing in this field all of Shammah's men they hightail it out of there and they leave Shammah by himself in this field but Shammah clings to his sword and he defeats the Philistines by himself. And it says that the Lord worked a great victory that day. Just one of the examples of the 37. And how lists worked back then was that the, the best and most prominent people at the top. And as you got further down, it was people of less um, notoriety. But still, nevertheless, 37 out of all of Israel is still pretty good. And like I said, a lion is on this list if you look all the way down at verse 34. <clears throat> at the end of the verse there, it says, Eliam, son of Ahithophel, of Gilo. So when David sends his servant to go inquire, who is this woman that I'm looking at? The servant comes back and goes, David, you know who this is. Her father, her dad is Eliam. He's the one who's currently right now fighting for you. He's one of your hand-picked greatest warriors in all of Israel. You know exactly who this daughter is. You know this family. But it doesn't stop there, because not only does David know Eliam, David probably knows Ahithophel a lot better than Eliam. Now, you don't have to turn there, but in chapter 16, Ahithophel uh, was one of David's most trusted counselors and advisors. It says uh, at the very end of 16 that um, Ahithophel was one who was highly esteemed in all of Israel. That when one would go consult Ahithophel, it was like consulting the word of God. Now Ahithophel, he wasn't always a good guy, but at least at this point, he was. And so you can feel the sheepishness and the awkwardness when the servant comes back to David. When David said, who is that beautiful woman? The servant comes and says, David, you, you know exactly who this is. You know this family. You know uh, a lion, the, the dad of this beautiful woman. You know her grandfather, for crying out loud, David. He stood in your courts earlier this week. He gave you godly advice. You know who this is. But that doesn't stop David. And that's the first piece of information that we usually overlook in this chapter. But for David, this probably would have been the thing that was hard to get rid of. The second piece of information is also found in verse 3 back in our, our chapter 11. So this is Bathsheba, the daughter of a lion. 
the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, uh, for me and Dan, when we were talking about this a couple months ago, um, it meant nothing to us. Breeze past it, kept reading. But for the original readers, and especially David, this would have been striking. Because it's not, uh, it's not Uriah the Levite. It's not Uriah the Hebrew or the Reubenite. It's Uriah the Hittite. And the Hittites were the, the mortal enemies of Israel. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 1, God tells uh, his people, Israel, that there are seven nations. This is when they're going from the wilderness into the promised land now. It says there are seven nations that are bigger and badder and much worse than you guys. And he lists them and he says these are uh, the, the Ammonites, the Girgashites, Hivites, Perizzites, Hittites, and so on. And so it's striking that Uriah the Hittite is found in our passage here. And it's for a specific reason. The reason God gave the Old Testament law to his people was because he didn't want his people, Israel, to be like those seven nations. Oftentimes God says, I'm saying this because this is what the other people are doing. Leviticus 18, the, uh, the sex text of the Old Testament, which makes a list of don't sleep with this person and this person and this person. And it goes on and on and on. And when we read it, we go, well, that should be obvious not to do those things, not to sleep with those people or to sleep with an animal or all these sort of things. But at the end of verse Leviticus 18, God says, I'm telling you this because this is what the other nations are doing. This is what they find as normal. And so I want to just spend just a minute talking about how Uriah would have grown up. Because it'll play a huge role later as we keep going. Because Uriah, there's a good chance he could have been the oldest, but probably not the firstborn. I'll get to that in a second. And as Uriah grew up, in, in Hittai, it probably would have been common for him to come home to find his mom or his dad sleeping with somebody else who is not his mom or his dad. Because sex in their culture was completely casual. It was just like eating or drinking. It was uh, a desire that needed to be filled and you can go out and fill it however you want. You can also use sex to talk to the gods. You can go to the, the Asherah temple and you would sleep with the cult prostitutes to hear and appease this goddess. And there wasn't only Ashwith, there was also Baal or Molech. Uriah's parents probably took their firstborn baby and rolled it into the fire of Baal or Molech to appease this God. And this is how Uriah most likely grew up. His entire culture was like this, where sex was very casual and you worshipped a multitude of gods through a multitude of different ways. And so God says to his people, Israel, when they're leaving the wilderness and they're going to take the land, he says, just wipe them all out. Their wickedness is so great that I need them gone. And as Israel does that, and God gave Israel the law in the Old Testament, God gives a caveat to the law. And he says, you shall have one law for the sojourner and the native among you. And what God is saying to Israel is that he's already anticipating some of those nations leaving their old ways and joining Israel. 
God anticipates from the very beginning that although he becomes exclusive to Israel through the law, that this is how you get right with me, Israel wasn't to be exclusive of other nations. God says, I want the other nations to see how you live and that you live differently. And I want the other nations to look to you, Israel, and to want that. And if they join to you, let them join, let them rejoice, let them be circumcised and partake in the Passover in my law. A great example of this is, um, that's not my notes, Rahab, the harlot. She, after Jericho, her and her household join Israel. And she marries a godly guy named Aminadab, and she raises and fathers a godly son called Boaz. And as we're going to see, it's my conviction and my belief that Uriah gave up everything, gave up all of his practices, gave up all of his um, ingrained um, habits to follow the God of Israel. Much like all of us here who call ourselves believers, all of us in this room had to give up something to be a Christian. Nobody becomes a Christian at no cost. For some of us, it was friends. Friends who uh, we no longer ran in the same circles because we just didn't want to do the same things that made us friends with them in the first place. For other of us, it's our own family. Some of us had to uh, give up our own families to be part of this new family. Family members who said, why go to church on a Sunday? It's a waste of a weekend. Why do you read that old book? But yet we're willing to give up family and friends to be part of God's family. Not only did Uriah have to give up family and friends, he also gave up his entire nationality and joined himself to Israel because he wanted to properly relate with the living God, Yahweh. So those are the two pieces of information that we often skim through uh, when reading verse 3, but as we're going to see, that will, those will add a lot of weight as we keep going through the story. <clears throat> as we keep going, we know that David reaches out to this woman and, and she comes to him and he sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. And uh, as Andrew said, my, my wife, Katie, she, we're expecting our firstborn in a little over two months. And for me, when Katie told me that I was going to be a dad, uh, I still get goosebumps thinking about it. <laughs> and and we've got to celebrate with my family and with her family, with our church family, and celebrating that there's this new little life coming into the world that we created. But for David, there's no excitement, there's no goosebumps, at least for joy. There's no, I can't wait to tell my family and friends, there's just how do I get rid or how do I cover up this little one now? How do I try and distance myself from this child? That's where we get into verse 6. And his immediate plan is, let's call uh, Uriah. Let's call her husband back home for war. And now, this is where, obviously, we meet Uriah in person. And we're going to encounter a couple of things, at least for us uh, thousands of years later that we see as red flags when we read this because we know the whole story and I'm going to address three of those at least as we keep going two or three of those the first one being right now you know David sends for Uriah and Uriah comes home and a question that one of the, the teens asked when we went through this in the summertime was wouldn't he think something's wrong if you got called home from your job in the middle of the day wouldn't you think something's wrong yeah, you probably would. But if you flip 
sorry, or if you were still in chapter 23, at the very, very end of chapter 23, in the list of David's mighty men, Uriah is there. Uriah is also one of those mighty men of Israel, fighting alongside his father-in-law, Eliam, who fights for David. I think that's verse 39. So in Uriah's mind, when he gets called home from war, it partially makes sense. David wants a report on the war. He wants to know how Joab's doing, how the people are doing, and how the war is strategically and militarily and, and with morale, how it's all going. So in Uriah's mind, it, it kind of makes sense for David to ask him to come home because he trusts David, and David trusts Uriah, and he's also one of the top people in the, in the army. So from Uriah's perspective, there's nothing out of the norm here. He's coming home to give a, an active uh, report on what's going on. And I'm sure for David, as he's asking Uriah, hey, how's the war going? How's Joab? And Uriah's giving his full report. I'm sure as David's standing or sitting there, it's going in one ear and out the other, and he doesn't hear a word Uriah says, because all he's thinking is, how do I get this guy to go home to sleep with Bathsheba? And Uriah finishes up his report, and David says, go, go back to your home. Take a load off your feet. Here's a present. Go sleep with your wife. But verse 9 says, But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the king's servants. And some of your translations might read, um, He slept at the guardhouse. Which is uh, a more accurate translation, is that outside of David's palace or a king's palace doors would be a, a guardhouse, right outside the front where the palace guards would stay. And that's where Uriah chooses to spend the night. He chooses to spend the night there as a symbol to say to David, I'm going to remain on active duty even while I'm at home. I should be out there fighting and I don't really want to be here because my job is worries to be out there. But although I'm here, David, I'm going to sleep in the guardhouse to show you I'm still on duty even when I'm at home. And the servants tell David the next morning, Uriah actually never went home. He stayed with us in the guardhouse. Verse 11 Uriah says, <clears throat> Uriah says to David, you know, why didn't, why didn't you go home? Sorry, and Uriah says, because the ark and Israel and Judah, they're dwelling out there in booths. And Joab and the servants of my Lord, they're all dwelling in the fields. They're all camping out. How can I go home to eat, sleep, and to lie with my wife when they're all doing that? David, as you live and as your soul lives, David, I would never do such a thing. And he says this because when Uriah gave up everything to follow Yahweh, that also meant he accepted everything that came with following God. It wasn't a buffet salad we got to pick and choose. What does it mean to follow God? He accepted everything. And that meant that there is a, a very obscure, small, one-line law in the Old Testament that said, when you go to war, keep yourselves ritually clean not even to sleep with your wife when you're at war because you're to remain holy before God. And Uriah the Hittite understood and knew that Israeli law, and he kept it. And so what he is saying in verse 11 is, David, how can I do that? How can I go home and sleep with my wife when everyone's still at war? Like, I'm still on duty. I slept at the bunkhouse. David, as your soul lives, I would never disrespect you. I would never dishonor you. And I would never dishonor God by going home to sleep with my own wife while I'm at war. 
and you can feel David start clenching his teeth and his skin start to crawl as this Hittite stands before him quoting the law and, and proclaiming his own purity before David as David clearly knows that he is the one who slept with Uriah's wife. And now I know we stopped reading at verse 11, but we're actually going to go all the way through to Uriah's end. Just didn't have time to read it all. Because David tries one more time to get Uriah to sleep with his wife, his own wife. So he tries to get him drunk to go home and sleep with Bathsheba, but uh, Uriah ends up doing what most drunk people do, and he crashes on a couch that night. So David, furious at this Hittite who's, who's acting in holiness before him, he writes a letter to, to Joab. And we know what the letter says because the letter reads later on that um, put Uriah at the forefront where the battle is going to be the hardest. And when the battle starts, uh, when the battle starts going, have all of his men fall back so it's just Uriah and he dies in battle. And so he writes this note and he gives it to Uriah and he sends Uriah off, <clears throat> off to war. This is where another flag comes up that one of the, uh, the teens asked. They said, you know, why didn't Uriah just read it? Why didn't he just read the letter? And honestly, that's a great question from our perspective. But think of Uriah, of how we've just understood who this guy is. <clears throat> why should he? As of right now, from Uriah's perspective, is there any reason to suspect foul play? Not at all. From Uriah's perspective, he came home from war to give a report on the war. So it makes sense that he has a personal message from the king to the general, assuming what to do with the war. We've just seen in verse 11 also that Uriah respects and honors David. He doesn't want to disrespect the king because Uriah has so much love for David. There's no reason to read David's mail to someone else. So Uriah goes to Joab and he gives the letter to Joab. And Joab assumingly reads it in private. And um, the, the last day of Uriah's life, he wakes up like normal, he puts on his armor, he greets his men, he gets his orders from Joab, and he's stationed in such a way that he's opposite other mighty men. And maybe a little odd, and I'm sure he doesn't like it because that means it's going to be a harder battle for him. But he understands this is his job, and Uriah is doing his job well. And the battle starts. And assumingly it all starts as normal. They're engaging in battle. Things seem to be going um, Israel's way. And the Ammonites, they fall back to the wall where the arrows start to come from the wall to Israel. And as the arrows start to fall and some of your eyes, men start to die. Almost in unison, all of his men turn and run. This is the last red flag. Why doesn't Uriah run? That's a, a great question. Let's remember again, who is Uriah? Uriah is a man of valor. We know that from chapter 23, that he's on this list for doing something great and militarily. He may be the 37th of 37, but he's still on this list. And I'm sure as his men ran, he had the story of Shammah playing through his mind, how Shammah, when his men turned and ran, 
Shammah stood his ground, and there was a great victory, that the Lord worked a great victory through Shammah that day. And so as Uriah turns and sees all of his men running and the rest of them dead around him, he doesn't turn to run, but he stands. And as his minutes turn into seconds, I wonder if he was thinking, you know what, maybe the Lord can still work a great victory through me this day. And Uriah dies. Just like that. We know that David sweeps it under the rug. He tells Joab, uh, Joab, the sword devours one and then another. Concern yourself no more with this matter of Uriah. And it's a really sad story. It's, it doesn't change what happens with David and Bathsheba, not at all. But it adds a whole lot of weight and it adds a whole new perspective of the story that I, I'm sure we all know forwards and backwards. And to, to finish up, I want to end with uh, a short exercise that um, that we did with our young adults. We're looking at a different story, but similar exercise. With David, Bathsheba, Joab, and Uriah, how much does each person really know? From their perspective, what do, what do these four people really know from their own perspective? Well, David's easy. <clears throat> David, he knows the whole story. He knows what he did with Bathsheba. He knows that he tried to cover it up with Uriah, not once, not twice, but three times, and finally succeeded. And he knows he swept it under the rug. Bathsheba knows her half of the story. Obviously, she knows her involvement, what she did with David. But she also only knows that her warrior husband came home from war to give a report on it, and then went back to war and died in battle. An unfortunate reality of his job. So from her perspective, there's no reason to think foul play was involved in Uriah's death. Joab. Joab knows David wanted a report on the war, seemingly, so he sends Uriah. Uriah is back for one, two days, uh, which may be a little odd, but when Uriah comes back, he has this note from David saying, get rid of Uriah. So all Joab knows is that um, Uriah went home and he probably ticked off David, honestly. He probably did something in David's presence that made David so angry, or Uriah must have disrespected David for, for David to want Uriah gone. But what about Uriah? What does Uriah know? Absolutely nothing. Uriah doesn't know what happened with David and Bathsheba. Uriah doesn't know that he took his own letter of death to Joab. When all of his men ran away, he didn't think that was planned. He probably thought they were scared. And Uriah dies for king and country, believing full-heartedly that his whole life is still in order. Uriah... <clears throat> Uriah, um, you know, he, he honors David. David, who is his spiritual but also political authority above him, he, he honors and respects David. And is David acting appropriately as a spiritual and religious or as a spiritual and political authority? Not at all. But that didn't change how Uriah operated. He still, Uriah still decided to honor God. He still decided to do his job and do it well even underneath uh, a spiritual and political authority that wasn't operating as they should. And so uh, that's 
the story that we've all heard but from a different perspective. And I'd love to hear you guys uh, hear dialogue, to hear what you guys have to say, things that stuck out to you or questions or comments. Um, yeah. Lessons? from Uriah. So how can we as Christians be more like Uriah? So I got five lessons uh, that we can take from Uriah. Um, I'm sorry if I didn't make some of them clear as I was going through it, um, but uh, hopefully you were to, uh, hopefully these will be a good reminder. So yeah. Okay, well hold on a second here. Let's do it this way. Oh, they should be there. <laughs> oh, uh, do you have to click through them? Oh, perfect. Oh, you do? I see how you do it. Okay, I get it. Go there, just uh, go for it like that. Okay, All right. perfect. Yeah. So number one, for, uh, for lessons. Um, just like Uriah, we have to be willing to give up everything to follow God. Uriah gave up all of his practices that were ingrained in him from childhood, all these, these Hittite practices. He gave up his family, his friends, and he gave up his own nationality. He was willing to give it all up to follow Yahweh, to follow the God of Israel. Just flying through them. Um, number two. Also, just like, just like he gave up everything, that also meant he had to accept everything about God as well. And I know, just like us in here as Christians, we gave up something to follow God. We've also run into things that we don't like about God that we know we have to change to. We can't make God or the Bible change. We know that we have to be the ones who change to fit God's word. I'm sure for Uriah, going from a sexually promiscuous nation to a God who says one man and one woman um, forever, that he would have really struggled with that. That would have been something that, that just didn't make sense to him that he probably didn't like. But he accepts that. Just like Uriah, we have to choose God's way over our, our own fleshly desires every day. Now for Uriah, this is obviously different than us, but he said no to sleeping with Bathsheba. His own wife, who he's married to, he said no to sleeping with her in a time of war because that's what God asked him to do. His fleshly desire, although um, now in our context, being, being post-cross, um, Sleeping with your spouse is completely fine, but for him, that was something that he just couldn't do because God asked him to remain ritually pure during a time of war. And for us, as believers, we know we have to say no to our fleshly desires every single day because then that comes with accepting everything that God asks us to do. Number four, just like you right, we have to maintain a righteous character under an unrighteous government. Now Uriah, like I mentioned at the very end there, Uriah uh, was underneath David who was his spiritual and religious authority. And David wasn't operating appropriately as that, but Uriah, it didn't change how Uriah did his job. It didn't change how Uriah honored God or related to God. And for me, that was a huge, 
thing that stuck out to me, and this was actually one of the most recent lessons I actually put in like two days ago, <laughs> because it, it really struck me. Um, the Bible doesn't have a contingency plan for how you're supposed to operate in persecution and out of persecution, or in a pandemic and out of a pandemic. The Bible asks us to live one way consistently, just like God is yesterday, today, and forever. So is his law and how he asks us to live. For your eye, he maintained his godly life underneath an authority that wasn't operating um, godly. Finally, number five. Just like Uriah, we have to accept that our jobs might mean we have to do things that we don't necessarily like. For Uriah, being stationed opposite other mighty men um, probably wasn't something he was thrilled about because he knew that would be hard. Um, probably something that gave him a little bit of anxiety. But he did it anyway. And standing his ground when everyone else left him and ran away, he knew that his job meant that there is an unfortunate possibility that he may die. He accepts that doing his job and doing it to the fullest was something that he was to do. 